Good evening. Good evening. We will call to order the Monday, June 6, 2019 meeting of the Astoria City Council. Roll call, Chief Spaulding. Councilor Herman? Here. Councilor Brown? Here. Councilor West? Here. Councilor Rock? Here. Here. Well, we have uh, quite a few wonderful proclamations to read tonight. How about fabulous? Fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> delicious. There we go. Woo! All right. And um, so what I'll do is uh, read the proclamations. And then uh, after I've read the proclamation, I'll we'll walk up to the podium. And whoever is here to receive the proclamation, do a little handshake photo. And if anyone would like to say anything at that time, they're more than welcome to make a few remarks at the podium. So I'd like to begin. Uh, with the recognition of one of our uh, distinguished citizens, proclamation. Whereas Sylvia Amanda Hannanen Carpenter Mowry was born on June 13, 1914, in Astoria, Oregon, to two Finnish immigrants, Anton Hannanen and Sophia Lescala Hannanen, two months before the beginning of the First World War. And whereas she lived with her family in Deep River, Washington from 1918 to 1932, and after a brief stay in Portland, moved back to Astoria, where she met and married her first husband, Milo Carpenter, a typesetter for the Daily Astorian. And whereas, after being widowed in 1943, she went to work at the cannery, and later at some point, while raising her daughter, Gail, she eventually met and married Anson Mike Mallory in 1946, and had two children, Ron and Marcia, and settled in the John Day community and started a business, the John Day Mobile Gas Station, Garage and Store. And whereas Sylvia now has 10 grandchildren, Mike Quartz, Dinah Curtis, Josh Beatty, Matt Beatty, Jerry Secord, Ben Secord, Talia Misner, Kristen Rimmel, Aaron Carey, and Blake Mallory, and 32 great-grandchildren, and three great-great-grandchildren. I just deserve applause. <laughs> And whereas as one of the last members of the greatest generation, Sylvia exemplifies the Finnish concept of sisu, stoic determination, tenacity of purpose, grit, bravery, resilience, and hardiness, having lived through two world wars and the Great Depression. Throughout her life, she has known hardship and hard work, yet loves her family and community and found joy in simple pleasures. And whereas Sylvia is a resident in the classic retirement village and will be celebrating her 105th birthday of family this month. Now, therefore, I'm Bruce Jones, Mayor of the City of Astoria, and on behalf of the City Council and the citizens of Astoria, Oregon, on this day of June 6, 2019, honor and celebrate the long life of Sylvia Amanda Hannon Carpenter Mallory. And I have the pleasure of going to Classic Retirement Village on the 13th, on her 105th birthday, to present her with a certificate, but tonight I'll present it to her family members, who I believe we have a few here. Woohoo! 
<laughs> Give someone a phone. Uh, uh, <laughs> Cindy will take a picture. Yeah. You can be in it. No, you got to scoot up and take the picture. So, who wants to? Uh, <laughs> Oh, is that her right there? There she is. Well, I look forward to meeting her. Very nice. Yeah, I was going to say, you probably have it. Congratulations, and uh, if you have any words you'd like to say, you're welcome to say a few words. Or... I think you said it all. Okay, very <laughs> Thank good. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Nice. The city manager astutely noticed I didn't sign it, so I'm going <laughs> That's why he gets paid the big bucks. Two proclamations are for much younger citizens. So this is uh, for the Kiwanis International Proclamation. Whereas Kiwanis International is one of the largest service organizations in the world with more than 551,000 members of all ages and abilities in more than 80 nations. And whereas the members of Kiwanis Club of Astoria number 140 are devoted to improving the world one child and one community at a time by seeking primacy to the human and spiritual rather than the material values of life. And whereas in addition to improving the lives of children in Astoria and communities around the world, Kiwanis Club members promote the development of community leaders, positive role models, intercultural understanding and cooperation, and opportunities for fellowship, personal growth, professional development, and community service. And whereas the first Kiwanis Club started its service in Detroit, Michigan in 1915, and the Kiwanis Club of Astoria number 140 was formed in, on June 2, 1919, and is celebrating 100 years of service to Astoria, Oregon. And whereas the service provided by the Kiwanis Club of Astoria will continue to have a positive impact on our community and citizens now, therefore, I, Bruce Jones, Mayor of the City of Astoria, do hereby proclaim this June 3rd, 2019, as Kiwanis Day, and hereby call upon the city's citizens of Astoria thereof to render support to the members of this organization and make themselves aware of Kiwanis International, whose members this day are providing meaningful service to our homes, schools, and community. In witness thereof, I have hereunto set my hand and caused the seal of the <laughs> to be affixed on the 3rd of June, 2019, signed Bruce Jones Mayor. Thank you. 
for this town in this county being class of post 12 took in the whole county when it first started. In 1919, we had 200 members. And we have this convention. The first night of the convention, the 26th, it will be open to the public at the high school auditorium. The rest of the convention is meetings, because it's you know, all the posts in the state coming. And at the same time, trying to put together with the city and the regatta association, one for the entire community in August, which I hope will come to pass. So everybody, I mean, this room is most likely full of veterans right here, or family of veterans. And there was 34 who were killed in action for this county in France during World War One. I'll just give you, we had the second, uh, we had the second convention here in 1920. I just, I didn't bring it with me, but a couple of things on the, on the list of items was the arrival of the Pacific Fleet in Astoria. Teddy Roosevelt, the president, was in Astoria. And oh, I forget. Oh, anyway. Ron, the Kennedys were here. Come on. Oh, 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 there's a lot of those. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've had about five or six presidents, vice presidents here. There you go. But it was uh, the whole community got together and. Our historian, Jimmy over here, and I are putting together a history book that will start in 1919 and go through 1926 when they put up the billboard. But thank you very much, and God bless America. Thank you. So we have one more proclamation, and clearly tonight we're following the protocol of Age Before Beauty. Here are <laughs> our, youngest, our youngest group tonight. A proclamation, whereas the city of Astoria has a diverse lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer LGBTQ community, and is committed to supporting visibility, dignity, and equality for all, and whereas members of the LGBTQ community contribute to the enrichment of our city in many capacities, and whereas progress has been made with respect to equitable treatment of LGBTQ persons throughout the nation, but it continues to be important for cities like Astoria to stand up and show support for our LGBTQ residents. And whereas many cities in the United States and around the world recognize and support June as a symbolic month in which LGBTQ persons and supporters come together in various celebrations of pride and whereas the rainbow flag, also known as the pride flag, has been used since 1978 as a symbol of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender pride, and LGBTQ plus social movements, 
And now, therefore, I, Bruce Jones, the mayor of the city of Astoria, Oregon, do hereby declare the month of June as LGBTQ plus Pride Month and invite everyone to reflect on ways we all can live and work together with a commitment of mutual respect and understanding. And signed, Bruce Jones, mayor. Yeah! Mike time coming up this weekend. However, I don't need a mic. <laughs> Thanks to everyone in this room. Thank you to Astoria. Thank you, Councilman, Mayor. Without your support, we would have a lot worse time living here amongst everyone. And it's because of you, because of the supporters, that we continue to have celebrations that started back as riots in 1969. We are celebrating our fourth year of celebration here and the 50th year of Stonewall. Yeah. So this next weekend, starting Friday night, the 7th, uh, with the gala at uh, the Liberty Theater, uh, as well as a reception going on through the weekend with a block party, strutting the market on Sunday, which is a new event, uh, and then following up or finishing up uh, Sunday afternoon with uh, Miss Daylight uh, doing a reading in Seaside at Beach Books. So thank you, everyone. Thank you, Mayor. Thank you. We have choir practice. We have choir practice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.
great having Senator Merkley here at the college. Um, it was also great that we got to go through all the code updates detail at our work session because to be hit with all that my code was I think more than uh, uh, more than we'd be able to cope with. Joan uh, uh, Herman and I took a uh, tour of the Astoria watershed, which was uh, very very interesting, and uh, it really makes us proud of the way we are managing our watershed here. Uh, we are one of the few cities really that owns its own watershed. And uh, you know, from time to time, you'll hear about uh, harvesting that's done in the watershed, and I know some people get nervous about that. But the point of that, we inherited a watershed that was that was basically replanted with non-native trees, with trees that weren't here in the first place. And what's happening in the watershed now is thinnings, so that you can clear out those stands where you have all Douglas fir or all that particular kind of tree, open them up a little bit, Our, our watershed is, is one that is recognized as a place where uh, carbon credits can be sold, which can contribute to the way it's ecologically managed. So it was great to go through it and, and see that up uh, from the person. Um, got to stop by the Splash in the summer events at the Astoria Aquatic Center. It looked like a big success. I understand well over 200 people came and, and used the pool that day, and of course, many more outside enjoying the hot dogs that are part of the I got to go to the Tiffany Mitchell Town Hall, and uh, Tiffany Mitchell, uh, uh, our state representative, did a really thorough job of explaining to people, not all of whom were happy about it, why she had voted in favor of the Curves Reform Bill. And she was very, very uh, complete and, and precise about her reasons and the research she had done, so I thought she did a great job with that. Thank you, Council West. Well, um, Roger mentioned a lot of the things that I um, was going to go over, so I'll make mine brief. Uh, I do want to reiterate uh, just how many great events that we had going on last weekend, including Splash into Summer, um, the two events that happened at the library on Saturday, so the, the Daughter of the Holocaust Rescuer, as well as um, the Pride Story Hour, uh, and both of those went really well. Um, I also appreciated the city and county-wide meeting that we had, which I believe was on the 23rd. I think the most beneficial thing for me out of that was just getting to actually meet people in person that I hadn't met with before, um, and sort of putting some of the personalities to the, to the faces that I've only ever exchanged information with over email, um, or gone to talks that they've given, but never really had a chance to have a dialogue. Um, gosh, I think of, I'm looking forward to my watershed tour with Jeff this Monday, I think. And uh, I have um, another meet and greet coming up. That's Thursday, June 20th, 4.30 p.m. Um, at the Alderbrook Hall. Um, and I think that's probably it. If the Kiwanis gentleman was still here, I would thank him personally. I had a niece who at nine days old was in Dornbecker for two weeks. And so um, I just, the work that they, they do specifically in this community is really valuable. So that's all I have. Thank you. Mr. Brownson. Thank you, Mayor. Um, so pretty much a shorter version of what we've heard down, down the line here. And uh, again, the, the county uh, work session 
the other uh, councils and county, I think it is always valuable, and for no other reason, I, I agree. It's, you get to meet some of the other personalities out there uh, and kind of get a little bit more of their measure and, and their take uh, on some different issues that, that pop up. And, and you can kind of see maybe what issues are of uh, kind of countywide concern, hopefully, in that situation. Um, and I agree with, again, with Roger, I want to second that about Uniontown. I think the, I think people really need to take opportunities to be involved and, and uh, give their input on that. This is the time to do it. We need to hear uh, what you'd like to see happen there in relationship to what the city has the opportunity to accomplish. And um, I think I'll leave it at that. I, I also went to uh, Representative uh, Mitchell's Town Hall, and again, I, I have to applaud her on her uh, thoroughness. It, this is a young woman who has had no political experience, who was just elected and is thrown into a session with a state that is complex, loaded with stuff. And I have been watching her, and she's been working really hard for us. Um, and I just want people to understand just how hard she's working, how thorough she is when she's taking on all these huge numbers of issues. And this was the purge one of this. Um, that's like the, probably the hardest thing that she's had to do so far. She had to go against sort of her constituency, the people that really worked hard to get her elected. And, um, and I think that she just shows how much courage she has and she's willing to stand up and, and take the heat and explain herself. Uh, so again, I have nothing but good things to say about our representatives. So I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Councilor Rowe? Yes. Um, all of us attended the city and county elected officials meeting. So it felt, it was pretty cool to be able to sit around that table. But if you can imagine about two dozen elected officials sitting around the table, all wanting to get their voice heard. So it was a little difficult to get a word in edgewise, but it was a great experience, and we had a good good discussion about housing, emergency preparedness, and some other important issues. And we're I think, going to try and do it twice a year, or maybe three times a year, rather than just annually, as apparently has been the case. I was honored to be able to meet with Senator Merkley, um, with a small group of elected officials before our hand, including Councilor Rocca and Mayor Jones, and I'd never met him before. Um, so I'm a little starstruck, to be honest. Um, he has a fair amount of influence, and he comes into the room, and he's wearing jeans and a plaid shirt. So he fit right in in our community. Um, he's also very soft-spoken, which surprised me. I attended the Memorial Day event at the uh, Maritime Memorial um, down under the bridge in Uniontown. And I'm embarrassed to say in my 19 years off and on here, I'd never been down there. So um, it was really great to be able to be a part of that. I, um, the highlight though of my last two weeks was um, what Councilor Rocca mentioned, the tour of the watershed. Um, and so I really wanna thank Public Works Director Jeff Harrington, our city forester Ben Hayes, um, as well as the watershed I don't remember his exact title, but manager essentially, Nate Bartlett, um, and Nathan Crater, the city engineer,
finding the vehicle that could get me up into the watershed. I didn't think I'd be able to get up there at all. So I'm really grateful for that. I learned a lot, one of which is the fact that we, our part of the country, our small corner of Northwest Oregon, Southwest Washington, is actually experiencing a drought, um, which if you think about it, we're not too surprised because it's been pretty dry um, by our standards. So that's something to keep in mind. Um, but I'm, as uh, Roger said, I'm really impressed with the way our watershed is being managed um, to provide pure water to the residents of Astoria. And we are, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, um, the only, possibly the only community in the entire state, as Roger mentioned, that has complete control over its watershed. So that's, you think about the importance of water, that's a huge deal. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. Thanks, Councilman. Uh, I've had a chance to participate in two major disaster preparedness events since our last meeting. Uh, the most exciting one was today. Um, we had well over 100 emergency management professionals from Northwest Oregon and Southwest Washington over at Camp Wailea for some briefings from the Navy Third Fleet, which is based in San Diego and has an extensive amphibious capability and helicopter capability, and the Oregon National Guard and some other <coughs> entities. And then we all went down to the beach and uh, were able to observe the uh, USS Anchorage, which is an LPD, or landing uh, platform dock. So it's basically a 700-foot floating cargo ship and dock for amphibious vehicles which was five miles offshore and launched to LCACS, another acronym, Landing Craft Air Cushion. These huge uh, hydrofoils that came ashore with heavy equipment, earth movers, bulldozers, trucks. Oh, they're hovercraft. Yeah, Landing Craft Air Cushion. Oh, oh sorry, that hovercraft, yeah. And um, anyway, and then uh, along with uh, Ms. Rideout and I and 28 other lucky people got to actually ride out on an LCAC out to the LPD and get a tour of the ship, which has phenomenal capability. It can carry an incredible amount of cargo, uh, over a thousand people. They have a full medical suite, surgical rooms, medical treatment facilities, dental. They can serve thousands of meals a day. It's, a, it's an amazing capability if we do have a, a tsunami here for them to now know our area. They've now landed on our beaches, they've surveyed our region, and they can come in here and provide assistance. And they've worked us into their plans, which is just a phenomenal thing. Um, last week, there was also a tsunami debris workshop Again, hosted by Oregon, or Classic County Emergency Management, Ms. Brown, at the college. Uh, Jeff Harrington was there, Chief Crutchfield was there, about 50 other people from about five county area, talking about how we deal with uh, the, the mountains of debris that will be generated by an earthquake and a tsunami, much of which is hazardous, and, and how you get that stuff removed and begin rebuilding your uh, community. So that was real good. Uh, also had a chance to attend the Tongue Point aids the navigation team change of watch. Welcome the new uh, senior chief petty officer in that leads that unit that repairs buoys up and down the Columbia River in this region, keeps traffic flowing. And then finally, uh, the Memorial Day ceremony. I went to the, the Memorial Day service at Ocean View Cemetery, which was organized by Mr. Phillips, who's left now, that accepted the American Legion certificate earlier. But it's a very moving memorial they do there for all those who have given their lives for their country. And they do that every year. And then finally, finally, uh, I'll, I'll just add to the, the comment about the meeting we had with Senator Merkley before the town hall. 
and I, I brought up several topics with them, which was urging additional federal funding for addiction and mental health treatment, for early childhood education and Head Start programs, um, support for the uh, MARAD or Maritime Administration grant that WCT Marine has put in for at some point. They've asked for just under, just under a million dollars to get some additional heavy lifting equipment there to work on bigger boats, which means more jobs, which means more welders, which skilled blue collar work in our community. And finally, I urged him to look at getting federal recognition of Mertz as a federal maritime center of excellence. Are there any changes to the agenda? No changes. Consent calendar. Items on the consent calendar are considered routine and will be adopted by one motion unless a member of the council requests an item considered separate. <coughs> Members of the community may also have an item removed if they contact the city manager by 5 p.m. the day of our meeting. Have any items been asked to be removed by the public? No citizen requests. Uh, councilors, any items to remove? All right, in that case, I'd like uh, to make a motion to uh, approve the consent calendar. Okay, and uh, roll call. Uh, Ms. Brooks. to an issue, please raise your hand and then you'll be able to go to the podium, state your name and address, and you'll have three minutes to make a comment to that issue. Uh, item 8A is a public hearing and first reading amendment request A19-04 for miscellaneous, miscellaneous issues. So over the years, staff have identified several sections of the development code that need to be updated for various reasons. And some of the requested code language changes are corrections and codification of some interpretations that have been made by the planning commission, staff, or the city attorney throughout these years. Many of the proposed amendments would streamline the process for both staff and the general public when uh, community development department permits are being processed. So these uh, items are the topics that were discussed at last week's work session that uh, Rosemary Johnson went over with uh, the, the uh, city council. I'm going to ask um, Ms. Johnson to come forward. She's going to give a very brief overview of uh, the changes which are uh, before you in this ordinance. Um, I would note uh, for the record that there was testimony provided by Michael Sensenbach. Um, those copies of the testimony um, have been uh, provided to you here at the dais uh, this evening, and Ms. Johnson will actually go over um, some of Mr. Sensenbach's comments and, and uh, provide some, some feedback from, uh, from staff. Um, after Ms. Johnson's uh, brief presentation, it'd be in order for the council to hold the public hearing, and if the draft code meets the council's expectations, uh, conduct a first reading of the ordinance. Tonight, I'm just going to go over very briefly what the amendments are entail. Um, they're broken up into some basic uh, 
ideas, such as process and procedures. And the intent of the code is to make more administrative permits, and this will save citizens both time and money, and will also save staff some time in processing. Uh, some of those things will be very minor and variances, such as the height of a fence, which always has to go to the Planning Commission right now. So as an example. Uh, also add process for, for code interpretations and legal lot determination. These are things we do on a regular basis, but there was never a written process in the code. The other uh, category is interpretation for clarification. Sometimes uh, language in the code is not as clear as was, it was originally intended. And so we've added graphics and some expanded language to make it a little bit clearer for both the citizens and for staff when interpreting the code. Another section is setbacks and exceptions. Uh, when citizens come in for variances for setbacks to steps or handicap ramps or other features in their homes, they have to go through a process either administratively or through the Planning Commission. Some of these are always approved because of necessity. And so what we're trying to do is set up some of those as exceptions so that the citizens do not have to go through that costly and time-consuming process. Um, one of the items, as an example, would be uh, the need for a handicap-accessible ramp. Uh, if someone needs that ramp to put them through the variance process right now, this exception would allow it automatically and not go through the process. Uh, so miscellaneous updates also, we want to uh, allow for additional housing opportunities, and so we're expanding some of the housing in the commercial zones, uh, such as allowing uh, residential uses behind commercial uses on the ground floor in some <coughs> zones, and also allowing some exceptions. Um, such as currently we have a situation where people may have two or three units in their home. And if they cease the use of that unit for one year, they cannot use it again <coughs> because it doesn't meet the code. Due to the housing shortage, what we're recommending here is an exception that says if they meet certain criteria, that they would be allowed to reuse that unit <coughs> under certain conditions. Um, also allow for and clarify some of the uh, parking exemptions. Uh, this would open up a little bit more on the parking in neighborhoods when there is ample on-street parking such as a corner lot or parking on both sides of the street. Uh, we wanted to also standardize both the lighting and the outdoor storage area enclosure standards and make those applicable citywide. It was sporadic, some zones had slightly different language, but it all meant the same thing. Uh, the other thing is to prohibit billboard trucks. You know, those are trucks that are used strictly for billboards and uh, drive around the town for no other reason. Uh, city managerist has mentioned the one letter you received uh, concerning amendments to existing permits, which is one of the processes and procedures. Currently, if 
a permit goes through one of the commissions, such as the Design Review, the Planning Commission, or the Historic Landmarks Commission, uh, an applicant must adhere to the plans and to the conditions of that permit. If they want to come in and change a condition, that has to go back to the commission. If they have a minor change, such as, um, I ran the list of all the ones we've done in the last uh, eight years, and most of them are repositioning of a window or making two windows instead of three on an elevation, changing a window from what's called one over one, which is one glass over one glass, to maybe two over one or, or some minor change like that. Uh, changing a double window on a rear elevation to a door. So these are all what staff consider minor uh, alterations. If all the alterations have to go back to the commission, that would be quite extensive in the number of permits that would go before the commissions. It would cost the applicant a lot more money and it would take uh, time from the project. Some of the uh, other amendments to existing permits, um, when a project gets to building code stage, occasionally you'll find that maybe a door has to be recessed two more feet, or maybe the deck has to be enlarged or shortened by two feet or so. Those issues staff usually approves administratively and does not take those back to commissions. And so I understand the concern by the, uh, the letter and we would hope that we could keep them in just the, the very minor issues. Um, what one person thinks is major and what another person thinks is major. Most of the time when we're approving something administratively, it would have been something that would have been recommended for approval from the beginning by staff. It's not changing anything dramatically on the design or location. Okay. And with that, I um, can answer questions or So, I mean, I'll open the public hearing in a minute. Does any council have a comment before we open the public hearing? Otherwise, we'll have a comment period after the hearing. Wait. I don't have any questions. Thank you, Rosemary. Sorry, I had a, a question, Rosemary. Sorry. Um, and I think that you went over this, but under the miscellaneous updates, I was reviewing the packet uh, a couple days ago after the work session, and the additional housing opportunities in the commercial zones. Is the language is clear that that is for long-term residential, correct? Yes, because when you say residential, that means permanent housing. Okay. If it's transient lodging, it comes under different classifications such as bed and breakfast, homestay lodging, lodging motel. Okay, like that. that's how I read it. I, I think I just wanted to be clear right. on that. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for all of your work on this. Thank you. Uh, does anyone object to the jurisdiction of the City Council to hear this matter at this time? Uh, anyone speaking tonight should address their remarks to whether or not... I'm not sure this is the right language. This is the application? Yes. This is considered an application? Okay. Whether the application in question meets the necessary criteria, and if not, state why. The applicable criteria are listed in the staff report and may be obtained from the Interim Community Development Director. <coughs> 
Failure to raise an issue in person or by letter to the City Council makes an appeal of that same issue will not be permitted. If you wish to speak, please come to the lectern, give your name and address, and then give your testimony. Public hearing is now open. Is there anyone that would like to speak to this application? Public hearing is now closed. Council discussion. I just want to say that Brooke uh, Mayor Johnson did a, a really great job during the work session going over this in detail and certainly satisfied all my questions. This is really a lot of housekeeping and procedural stuff that will help, uh, help our staff be more efficient and also help the public kind of move forward. So I really didn't see any red flags going through it, so I support it. I would concur. Um, yes, as, as Council Brownson just said, Rosemary, thank you for all of your work on this. I really appreciate not only your time, but your institutional knowledge, your historical knowledge of the departments and the community and our development code, having worked with the city for as many years as you have. Um, I'm not sure anybody else could have done this as thoroughly and meticulously as you did, so it's really appreciated. Um, and I also feel comfortable approving these. You, we had a two-hour work session uh, last Wednesday, and Rosemary went over the all of the changes in detail with us. So I feel comfortable. Wondered what that was. <laughs> yeah, I would agree. I think a lot of uh, the reason why I feel comfortable with this is because of the the numerous amount of questions that fellow counselors brought up. Um, and the mayor as well during our work session. It was almost like back being in college. It was extremely educational. And um, yeah, I think we asked her a, a, about a million questions. And she was able to answer every single one. So um, I really appreciated all of that clarity. I, I think that um, I think that was beneficial for the entire council. And, and I think Tom's right. A lot of these are kind of the smaller housekeeping issues that are going to help um, streamline this whole process much more effectively for the builders as well. So. Uh, I guess I would just add that cleaning up and clarifying code, which was also part of this, makes everything that follows easier and more understandable for everybody. Yeah, I'd also like to add, um, give credit also to the Planning Commission their work and, and make helping this process go forward. Uh, I know that they've spent a lot of time and effort in going into this stuff in detail. I think we've got a really good planning commission working right now. So I uh, appreciate the work and I respect it. Yeah, I'll second everyone's comments and, and also add in regards to the, um, the input we got today, which Ms. Johnson commented on, and I think that uh, continuing the current process, I agree with Ms. Johnson, we, we want to continue to delegate the appropriate level of responsibility to the staff and not bring things back to uh, to commissions on each on each minor administrative issue. So I would agree that we just not uh, respond to that uh, particular input. Could we have a motion to uh, for for a vote to have a second reading or first reading, sir? I second. All in favor? 
Aye. Uh, Ms. Brooks, can we have uh, the first reading? An ordinance amending the Astoria Development Code concerning miscellaneous corrections, updates, and interpretations in multiple sections citywide. Thank you. Item 8B is a public hearing and resolution to adopt fiscal year 2019-20 City of Astoria budget. Oregon budget law requires that the City Council hold a public hearing on the proposed budget as recommended for approval by the um, Budget Committee. And you may recall the Astoria Budget Committee uh, held the budget hearing at their meetings in the month of April and this is now being brought to City Council for consideration. The resolution which was included in the packet will adopt resources and appropriations and authorize the collection of taxes at a rate of $8, $8.1738 per thousand for fiscal year beginning June 1, 2019. Tonight is recommended that the City Council hold a public hearing on the fiscal year July 1, 2019 through June 30, 2020 budget as recommended for approval by the Budget Committee. After the hearing, it's recommended that the Council consider the resolution. The public hearing is now open. Would anyone like to speak to this matter? Public hearing is now closed. Council discussion. Well, I'd like to move uh, that we accept the uh, resolution to elect to uh, receive state share of revenues. Okay. Oh, Council, okay. so this, this is actually to approve the budget. <coughs> budget. The next one will be for the state share of revenues. So, jump ahead. Well, I move that we approve the budget. To I'll share. Okay, uh, roll call, Mr. Harrington. Councilor Herman? Aye. Councilor Johnson? Aye. Councilor West? Aye. Councilor Rocca? Aye. Aye. Item 8C is a public hearing and resolution to elect to receive state shared revenue. So, Oregon Revised Statute requires that the city adopt a resolution to declare its intent to receive state revenue for each new fiscal year. And state shared revenues include the state gas tax, alcohol tax, cigarette tax, marijuana tax and other associated uh, state shared revenues. It's recommended that the City Council hold a public hearing regarding the intent to receive state shared revenues for fiscal year 2019-20 as approved by the Budget Committee and after the hearing, it's recommended that the Council consider the resolution. Public hearing is now open. Bueller? <laughs> Would anyone like to speak to this? Public hearing is now closed. Council discussion. Well, I think we should take the money. Do, have we not? In the, is this no, 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 no. This, oh, okay. this, this is a this is a required procedure okay. as outlined by state statute to be able to receive these okay. funds. Um, I don't think there would be ever a time that we would um, we would not receive the state chair payments. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we turn it down. Okay, I move that we um, uh, approve the resolution declaring the city's election to receive state revenues. Second. Roll call vote. Mr. Williams. Councilor Rocket. Aye. Councilor West. Aye. Councilor Robinson. Aye. Councilor Herman. Aye. Mayor Jones. Aye. 
Item 8D is the Waterfront Bridges Replacement Project, 6th through 11th Streets Fund Exchange Agreement. So, Mayor and Council, we're going to actually take the next two agenda items simultaneously because they both pertain to the same project. And we thought it'd be easier for our project engineering and assistant city engineer, Cindy Moore, to give a more global snapshot of, of what's uh, associated with these two agenda items. And then after that, uh, we'll have motions to consider each item individually. So the first um, agenda item, which is the fund exchange agreement, after Ms. Moore is done explaining, it's gonna be recommended that council approve the fund exchange agreement with Oregon Department of Transportation for the Waterfront Bridges project and uh, authorize the mayor and city manager to sign. And then on the next item, which is the infrastructure financing authority contract amendment, it's recommended that the council approve the infrastructure finance authority interim financing contract amendment number one for the waterfront bridges project. So I'm gonna let Cindy give you more detail. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Cindy Moore, assistant city engineer. I'm glad everybody gave me the opportunity to come up here because both of these items are related to the financing of the Waterfront Bridges Project, but they're separate and related. Um, the first item has to do with the fund exchange agreement with ODOT. And I wanted to back up just for a moment, really briefly, to talk about what that what those funds are. So our um, the funds that ODOT keep for us in the surface transportation program fund, funds is what they're called, are the city's federal funds that come through the state. And what that does is it, it um, creates these funds that are less constrained by federal requirements. So it goes through the state and, and then to us. So the state keeps those funds for us. Um, and then they, we request it and they make sure that we're complying with the requirements associated with these transportation funds. Uh, when we request the funds, we're given 94 cents on the dollar. That takes care of some of the administrative costs associated with with ODOT um, handling those funds for us. In the past, we've used these funds um, as match for other projects, and they happen to also be bridge projects, the Franklin, project, Franklin Bridge Project and the Irving at 19th Street Bridge Project. In those cases, we had accumulated enough money in the SDP account that we could um, use the money and directly transfer it to ODOT for our match of those, of those projects. In the case of the Waterfront Bridges Project, we're required to match about $1.6 million, and we don't have enough money in our account with ODOT, so we leveraged it um, to get a loan through the Business Oregon Infrastructure Finance Authority. What you're being asked to consider today is a fund exchange agreement um, to cover the interest payment that we paid last year to the Business Oregon Infrastructure Finance Authority. Um, and the next item has to do with the, with the loan, but the requirement of our payback of the loan um, doesn't, the principal payback won't start until the construction's completed, but we are required to make um, payments on the, the interest. So last year, our interest was $7,089.92. So that's what um, we're asking ODOT to reimburse us for the interest payment that we made on that loan to cover that water um, bridges project. Is there any questions specific to that? Okay, I'll go into the second item. 
So the second item is um, the increase to the loan. So we took out the loan from IFA. We um, provided our match to ODOT, if you remember, when we awarded the project, or when we um, bid the project, we had to, to provide that match money. Then we bid the project and it, the bids came in high. ODOT covered um, the, the increase so that we could award the project with the city's agreement that we would uh, participate in that increase. We've been through the process. It went rather slowly with ODOT to get the amendments that you authorized in January, um, the official agreement where we paid that increase um, to the construction cost. And just through the processes, we're now here um, increasing our loan amount so that we can pay ODOT for that increase um, associated with that IBID. Um, a small detail that's in the memo that I wanted to point out is this is an interim financing contract. Um, that means in a, it's a three-year period. That gives IFA time to um, consolidate some loans for a bond sale, and our loan will be included in a bond sale. When it, after that is finalized, we'll be presenting council with another agreement that'll be a 25-year um, term loan at whatever interest rate that they're able to get for us. Any questions? No, thank you very much. Looks like your fan club has arrived, though. <laughs> Come on in, little Morris. <laughs> able to give an update to the project if you would like that to okay. um, I send out a message to the stakeholders that we're in the final month of getting these projects completed. Um, as promised, the cranes are being disassembled. 11th Street started coming down today. Then um, they need to get that equipment out of the way so they can start on the approach to the bridges. Uh, we are optimistic cautiously optimistic that in the next two to four weeks we'll be substantially complete on these projects. There's a lot of work that still needs to be done, um, but that's the schedule we've been uh, told by the contractor. Okay, thank you very much, Ms. Moore. Thank you. And any discussion on the fund exchange agreement? No, I move we approve the fund exchange agreement for the Waterfront Bridges project. I'll second that. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? And what about the IFA financing contract amendment? I move that we approve the IFA financing contract uh, amendment number one for the Waterfront Bridges Replacement Project. I'll second that. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? Okay, and finally item 8F is the 2020 carbon credit purchase. In 2015, the city of Astoria entered into a voluntary carbon project that sold carbon credits from our watershed. The purpose of the, Ford, uh, the forest carbon project was to generate non-timber revenue that diversified income streams from our watershed, and that original agreement identified a, poten a potential for a future sale. Earlier this year, staff was approached by the Climate Trust, um, who worked with us in our prior um, sale with an 
request to purchase more carbon credits. And over the past few weeks, the Climate Trust, city staff, with the assistance of our legal counsel, our city forester, Ben Hayes, our carbon credit consultant, David Ford, um, a negotiated an emissions reduction purchase agreement, which was included in our packet. This agreement has been reviewed by our city attorney, Blair Henningsgaard, as well as with the assistance of environmental counsel, Christine Hine of Rain Bender Law. And uh, we consulted outside counsel to be able to assist us uh, with this project over, over the years. Our public works director, Jeff Harrington, our city forester, Ben Hayes, and our consultant, David Ford, are here tonight. They're going to give a, uh, an overview of this project and be prepared to answer any questions after they're done. So after uh, the discussion, it's recommended that council authorize the agreement, uh, including the packet to be executed, and the project work be authorized to prepare the credits for sale to the Climate Trust. Great, come on up. Um, I'm just basically coordinating this project. I'm going to let the, the brains here speak, the, the gentlemen that are doing all the nuts and bolts work. Um, ben, ben, our forester, has been um, involved with the um, project. He was not involved with the previous project, but um, Mike Barnes, who was our forester back then, led that project and um, passed all that institutional knowledge on to, to Ben before he left. And fortunate for us, David Ford was involved with the previous project and has all that history. So we have this great benefit of not recreating the wheel again. We're, we're using a lot of information from the past project. So I'm going to let David start. I think we have ben, slides ben, up there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Could you show some slides coming up here? Yeah. 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 There we go. Got it. Okay. We're good. Perfect. Um, so really quickly, who we are, I'm Ben Hayes. I'm Forester and city forester for the city of Astoria. As mentioned earlier, I was not here for the past project, but have picked up some of that knowledge and also separately work on carbon projects. And then David Ford was here with the past project um, and has a business LNC Carbon, both developing and working as a consultant all around the US on carbon projects. Uh, quickly, we're going to cover a lot of information. So we're going to start off with, as we always do, the quick primer on where the Bear Creek watershed is and a little history on it. Forest carbon primer, just to get everyone on the same page about how carbon projects work, since I think we've had quite a bit of council turnover since then. Uh, background on this project, because the project started in 2015 and we're just kind of midway through it, and then some details on the 2020 credit sales that we're currently looking at. Oh. Um, so, Bear Creek Watershed is 3,700 acres. It's about 11 and a half miles from here, roughly that direction. Uh, this map here shows the outline in dark red of the watershed. Um, and one thing to notice here is how much darker green the watershed is than the surrounding land. That's really important for a carbon project. That just means we have a lot more forest carbon than the forest cover than the average acre of forest land in the region. Uh, some quick history, uh, the city originally purchased the water company that previously owned that land in the late 1890s, and then additionally purchased more land in 1911. Between 1936 and 1954, they purchased the remainder of that land in an exchange of cutting rights for land from Crown Zellerback. 
Uh, and then starting in 2002, the FSC certified the property, and in 2012, as part of that FSC certification, the city was required to complete a forest inventory. As part of that forest inventory, uh, forest carbon was quantified, and we'll talk about that in a little bit more detail. Uh, that led in 2013 to starting a carbon project, American Carbon Registry is what ACR stands for, and that was uh, completed in 2015. An important element though is it goes for 40 years, so it's really 2015 through uh, the end of that 40 year period, so we're just five years into that now. Um, so quick forest carbon primer. Uh, Forests are an important component of kind of encapsulating carbon emissions in the United States. So uh, currently forests are about 11% of US greenhouse gas emissions, um, but we are seeing a decline in US forest carbon sinks. So as it's sequestering carbon, we're seeing it playing a lesser role than it has in the past. But it's also one of the places where you have the greatest opportunity to increase carbon sequestration is in forests and in how we shift the management of forests. Uh, that map on the right is indicative of kind of how we stack up against the rest of the country. That dark blue and purple are the highest carbon stock per hectare. And you can see that here in Northwest Oregon on the top left, we're very dark um, in terms of high stocking. Uh, even with that, you are assessed in a carbon project against the average acre in that area, basically. And we on the Bear Creek watershed realized that that's quite a bit above the average acre for a variety of reasons that we'll go through. Very quickly, the carbon cycle, if you think of a tree as a whole bunch of straws that suck up water from the ground and evapotranspire that water into the atmosphere and grow, those actual straws, so the physical structure of a tree is roughly 50% carbon. Um, so as a tree grows, it's sucking up atmospheric carbon. Uh, when you burn that tree, for instance, you emit that carbon. Uh, if you put it into a house, that's a long-lived carbon store. So, for instance, this desk is encapsulated carbon, roughly 50%. Um, and then also just natural decomposition of a forest. That's a big source of carbon emissions. But you can do things to manage forests in a way where those trees, which are made up roughly 50% of carbon, store it for longer in a more stable form in the forest. So you don't get paid, though, for just storing carbon in trees. You have to be additional. So additionality is a word that we recently learned when we spell check this is not really a word. Um, but if you think of the red line across the bottom there as the average acre in Northwest Oregon, or in this case, the American Carbon Registry's carbon baseline, that's what you're comparing yourself to. So as an example here, the city of Astoria might be up where that black line is. So we would get paid for the difference in carbon between the red line and the black line times how many acres we have in that condition. If, for instance, you recently harvested the whole property, you might be down where that yellow line is. So you would be below the baseline condition. You would not have an opportunity to sell carbon credits. So we're up near where that black line is, and that's the reason we're able to sell carbon credits. One question that would come up is why couldn't we do that right off the bat? And because of legal requirements, you would not be able to clear cut the entire city watershed in one year. So that's kind of the baseline we're comparing ourselves to. So what would happen if this was just managed as industrial forest land? 
So you can spread that out over five years. It's called an adjacency rule. So that's why five years into the project, the baseline is actually dropping. And that's what's creating this additional large number of credits available for sale. The way we get additionality is primarily two different ways. One is extended rotation age, so growing trees longer than the average. Uh, because that property was acquired between the 30s and 50s, we're already in 2019 well beyond the kind of normal rotation age for this area. That property hasn't been harvested much for a long time. The other pr primary way we've gotten there is through uh, reserve areas. So areas in that forest that aren't actively being harvested. Because the city has both some really steep areas that with landslide risk maybe don't make sense to harvest at this point, or stream buffers that we would like to protect a larger area, we have had reserve areas over the years uh, where we could harvest, but we've made a decision not to harvest. So that creates carbon credits that are available for sale for sale on a market. There are two different markets. One is a compliance market, so California set up a cap and trade system where entities are required to buy carbon credits to offset their emissions. The other is a voluntary market. The city, it made much more sense to go into that voluntary market. Uh, and this is kind of the market scale, uh, I think back in 2014 or 2015. And just uh, Thinking about the scale of that market, the entire right side is forestry and land use projects, and the majority of those are forest projects. Um, so forestry and forest carbon credits are a very, very significant factor in global both compliance and voluntary carbon markets. Um, so this is kind of the steps in the process that got us to where we are today. So in 2012, we had that inventory done. We saw that there was additionality and Mike Barnes worked with David Ford. And this is really boiling it down to make it look really easy. This is like a three-year process with lots of hair pulling to get through these steps. Um, and then the last piece is we were FSC certified. That's the Forest Stewardship Council. And you have to be certified in order to go through one of these carbon projects. So it's kind of the inception, starting things out in 2012. Uh, moving through that, we had city council approval. And actually, we had an agreement at that point to sell carbon credits also to the Climate Trust. Uh, and then there was a lot of work done around project documentation, growth and yield modeling, uh, validation, and then a contract to actually sell the credits, and verification, so a third-party audit that includes field visits to verify that the carbon you're selling is actually there in the forest. Uh, and the transactions that have resulted for, from this, uh, 2015, there was a transaction with the Climate Trust there's actually another small transaction of I think about 17,000 credits that were kind of the leftovers from that first transaction but were part of the same contract. And then in 2020, we're gonna have about 145,000 credits available. So these are the details of that 2020 transaction. And apologies for the slide that is full of a lot of text. Um, the group that we're working with on this is the Climate Trust. Uh, they're an institution in Oregon that was set up as a nonprofit by the state to help the state offset carbon emissions, primarily from large fossil fuel energy facilities. Um, since then, they've started doing a whole bunch of different things. In this case, they'd be buying the credits to offset utility emissions. Um, and they originally did purchase the 2015 and subsequent credits from the city, and at that point actually stated that they were interested in future credits. Uh, 
the offer we currently have from them is for 225,000 credits. Um, ERTs are synonymous with credits, which are synonymous with one metric ton of carbon dioxide equivalent. Um, that offer is fully unit contingent, which is unique. It means that we're not obligated to deliver a certain quantity. So it's kind of like up to 225,000 credits. Of those, 145,000 would come from uh, the actual sale of new credits generated by a re-verification and re-inventory between now and 2020. And then 55,000 credits would be generated through substituting our buffer pool. So when you do a carbon project, you're required to set aside a certain percentage of the credits, basically in a shared insurance pool with everybody else who's doing a carbon project. So say our watershed burns to the ground, we've already sold that credit, this buffer pool would offset that. So that's the reason for buffer pool credits, but they don't have to be from your project. So what we would be doing is selling our buffer pool credits and replacing them with kind of like-kind buffer pool credits. It's a common thing to do. Um, and then we think that there's some possibility that a new inventory is gonna show that we actually are growing more carbon than we originally thought. So that's where we left 25,000 uh, ERTs credits in addition, so we were able to negotiate up to get slightly more credits. Uh, that leaves us with a gross revenue estimate of $1.4 million for net revenue of about a million dollars. Uh, the requirements to go through with this project in 2020 um, is we would need to do a new inventory. Our old inventory is out of date already, uh, so it's from 2012. Uh, we could hold it for a couple more years, but it really makes sense if we're going to sell additional credits to do the inventory at the same time and to do permanent plots. When the original inventory was done, uh, they were not permanent plots. These ones would be benchmarks, so really easy to find when we go back again. It would decrease the cost. Uh, project development costs include carbon modeling, documentation, submitting a new uh, project development document, and then working with the ACR and verifiers to move that whole process forward. Third-party verification, including a field audit, includes having an outside group come in and actually audit to verify that the carbon is there in the forest. There will be registry fees associated with the American Carbon Registry, which is the registry we're already signed up with. And then we would have to purchase replacement buffer pool credits uh, in order to substitute and sell the ones that we currently have. So the total cost of project development is estimated at $180,000. Uh, the total cost, if we include those buffer pools, is $400,000. We have set up, as you may have seen in the contract, though, that we could sell the 2020 credits and then use those revenues to purchase the $220,000 of buffer pool credits, decreasing the initial outlay that the city would have to make. So the timeline, I'm sorry this is really small on the screen, um, that we're looking at is this spring and summer we would finalize the contract. Uh, we've actually negotiated it already. Uh, we're at the second box over right now in terms of we need to get city council approval to move forward with that contract. And then this summer we would probably complete the inventory if not into the fall. This fall and winter we would be doing new carbon modeling, so growth and yield modeling to understand how much carbon are we growing in the future and how much carbon do we have today. We do need to revise our management plan both for FSC and for the carbon project. 
and it makes sense to do those at the same time. So we've held off on updating our management plan until we know if this is going to move forward. And then completing the project documentation in order to submit that both to ACR and to the verifier. Uh, in the spring and summer of 2020, we would have that third party verifier come in and actually do the verification. Uh, we would submit the project documentation to the ACR, and then we would have to put out an RFP to purchase the buffer pool credits. In the fall of 2020, which is when the transaction would need to be completed, we would complete the third party verification. The credits would be issued into the city's account at the American Carbon Registry. Uh, those would then be transacted over to uh, the buyer's account, and then the payment to the city would be made. So that's all we have kind of overall. I don't know if you have anything to add at this point, but we're happy to uh, take questions or discuss it. Okay, let me, I just, I'm going to add, uh, my name is David Ford with LC Carbon. Uh, I would just add that around the buffer pool uh, that Ben has been talking about, the reason we want to transact those is we can buy less expensive credits to put in a buffer pool from a different project type, like the landfill gas project. Uh, we can say buy those for two or three dollars. We can sell the forestry credits, which have more value in the marketplace, for seven dollars. And and so then we can, on those fifty-five thousand credits, we can basically put into the city's uh, coffers the difference between the cost of what we pay for those buffer pool replacement credits versus the value of those credits. The other thing that I would just add quickly is. Um, What's the value? Is If I was in your shoes, I, I serve on the budget committee for the city of Dundee, and so I always think of things from a budget perspective and say, okay, is this contract a good value, right? So is the, the price that the climate trust offering uh, the city of Astoria, is that a good value for you? And my simple answer is yes, it's actually a very good deal. The average price uh, in the voluntary market right now for, for forestry credits is around $5.10. This, this offers uh, substantially higher, and the question is, well, why would the Climate Trust pay a bit more? And the answer is because they've transacted business with the city before. They know the project. They think the project has a good story value, uh, so it's important uh, for them to not only get the credit offsets, but also all the other benefits or the co-benefits that come through a carbon project like the uh, watershed, because you're protecting wildlife habitat, you're protecting a high quality water resource. So there's more benefits there than just the carbon value itself. So that's why forestry broadly, but the specific uh, project that you all have uh, operating today is a bit higher value than what you might find elsewhere in the marketplace. Um, so I'll stop there and be happy to, uh, well, happy to answer any questions you may have about this. But you know, you are five years into a, into a four-year project, and you have an opportunity now to transact on another block of carbon credits. Um, and um, and the Climate Trust is uh, a good, reliable, known entity that we've worked with in the past. Uh, and I think is offering the city a, a very interesting opportunity to transact on these credits. It's very unusual to have a buyer come in and make an offer to buy your credits before you get them, the project completed, third party verified, uh, and the credits already into your account. The reason they're willing to do this is because they, they know this project and uh, they
they've successfully transacted with you. So they're willing to take a little bit of risk on their end to actually complete the project in a timely fashion and the credits will be generated uh, as we uh, expect them to be. So thank you. Thank you. A couple questions. Um, you mentioned the last inventory was done in 2012. Ideally, is that happening more often than eight years? You mentioned ours was outdated. So as we transact credits, every time we transact, we do need to re-inventory. Typically, if we were just, we weren't in a carbon project, we'd be updating it on a rolling basis. So we'd be inventorying some portion of the property every single year so that it was accurate within five to 10 years. So that's the range. So we're right in the middle of that range. If we did not do an inventory now, though, we would buy this project and by our FSC certification be required to do it in 2022. But if there was any upside, if the inventory shows that we have that extra 25,000 credits, right. we may not have a willing buyer at that point, which is why we would push for doing it now. Um, thank you. And then uh, just two more questions. I, and I apologize if, I, if these were provided and I missed them, but are these slides available? I would love to we can we can yes we, yes we can post this on um, public works department's website and you know, get them to the council as well. Okay. Uh, and then my last question, and hopefully this isn't too out of context, but it's my understanding that we only have one, um, or and maybe this is a county question, but how do we monitor uh, whether or not we're in a drought? So what I do that monitor the drought is look at the U.S. Drought Monitor website and it's um, uh, based off a, it's a different way of looking at droughts called the Palmer Index and it takes into consideration not just rainfall but also soil conditions and some other factors. So that's what I've been monitoring and, and that did change from um, the classification of abnormally dry to moderate drought just recently in the last few weeks. But um, you know, you could, and you can read. There's a lot of narrative in there to read about. But this is a pretty abnormal situation to have California, you know, completely out of the drought in this northwest corner, including, including uh, Olympic, you know, forest area, which is usually pretty underwet, um, to be even worse off than us. Yeah, I think I read the other day that their snowpack was at 202 percent above average in California. That is, but okay. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah, um, just follow up a little bit on the, the, the inventory. So we'll do this inventory in eight years instead of 10 years. So will the next inventory be required in uh, 10 years from this, this inventory? Yeah, so at this point we could set up to either have a rolling inventory, but at the longest we could go is 10 years from this inventory. From this inventory, yeah. okay. Um, and the, the proceeds of this, go into a capital account, um, is that correct? And I, I know that we use proceeds previously to, for one thing, to buy a new fire ladder truck. Is that correct? No, no, actually we, we use, we didn't uh, purchase the ladder truck with the capital improvement funds. Yeah. Those were purchased with uh, general fund revenues um, that we had a uh, one year, we call it okay. a surplus, uh, whereby there was a, additional revenues in the general fund that we could uh, make that one-time one-time purchase out of, uh, out of the general fund. What we did do with the last carbon credits 
library um, uh, renovation um, uh, fund that put, put aside funds for the renovation of the library. Um, and also we were able to um, take care of some larger ticket items throughout the departments. There was actually some work that was done in the watershed, there was some work that was done in the parks department. Uh, and so the, throughout the, the city, there were a number of, kind of uh, uh, different projects that were able to be funded. Um, looking at the future, you know, as, as you saw the slide, um, it doesn't look like that we may be seeing these revenues until you know, <coughs> next year, right? So they're not even included in this year's budget uh, that the council just approved. Um, we're going to have to determine uh, what to do with them, but they would go into capital improvement fund. That being said, there is some work that needs to be done uh, up at the watershed uh, to be able to, to um, sustain this program. And, and so we'd be looking at having some of those revenues continue to be used for watershed workers. And one of the, also one of the, the ideas is, is that, uh, this is very preliminary, is looking at the capital improvement fund, um, having it uh, put in a bit of a reserve to dole out over the years uh, into the future because we may not be seeing as large of timber cuts coming up in future years. And so since we're not gonna be seeing as large of timber cuts, uh, these could be banked uh, to be able to offset uh, that, to be able to sustain a viable capital improvement fund budget over you know a, a number of years. That's just in concept some things that have been discussed with staff. Okay, thanks. And, and just to uh, be clear, it's a requirement that it goes into a capital account. This cannot go into a general fund or anything it's, like it's that. We're, we need to keep required. It's the city's policy. That, in the, the city's policy. So, I mean, is, so is that a written policy? Um, is it's it an assumed policy? Um, I, I would have to look. I mean, the, the city council could change that. It's the reason why staff does not recommend uh, taking um, revenues like this and using them elsewhere is they're not a sustainable uh, um, sure, I so I just want to be clear make sure that you know um, say something did come up two years from now that that was not a capital that this would save today it would be something we could address at the time I have no idea yeah. what it is I'm just kind of want to make sure I understand how we use these funds that we get yeah, it's, it's, tip, it's been the C's policy, and I have to look and see how it's stated. And Ms. Brooks, I don't know if you can chime in a little bit more. Um, it, so the intention of the capital improvement fund is to account for the capital assets that we sell, and that's why they normally go any sales, we have land sales or carbon sales off the land or revenue generating things, our state shared revenue, those type of things go into our capital improvement fund. And that from there we draw out our future capital assets. So it's kind of all contained in the similar fund. We have one source for those resources and the expenditures. Okay. So it's it's the way the fund is defined when it was adopted and its purpose. Okay. That's fine. I don't know what you thought that. And uh, basically I had a question. So and I, th I think I heard the answer, but this is because we have a two-year process and we're going to be investing money to do the inventories, to pay for third-party inspections. All those are going to be before we receive any money so that this contract guarantees that they will pay us what they offer 
two years from now, right? Yeah. Okay, thanks. So. I have a couple questions. Um, I want to make sure I understand this correctly. So this will be a gross oversimplification of what carbon credits are. So we, in exchange for agreeing not to harvest so much timber in the watershed, the city will be paid a net amount of a million dollars, is that correct? Approximately. Okay, and we wouldn't, I mean just so, I guess probably most of you know this because you're mostly regular attendees, but we only harvest a very small percentage in our watershed anyway, annually. Um, so this really wouldn't affect that those small annual harvests, would it? Okay. So based on that 2012 inventory, at that point we had about 100 million board feet of standing volume in the watershed. Um, that produced roughly a 4% growth rate, 4 million board feet of harvestable wood every year. Uh, what we agreed to do in 2015 was to not cut more than a million feet of that per year. So we basically sold everything up to that point, and then anything we grow past that point, we also are saying we're going to cut a million feet of this, but that remainder we're not going to touch. Mm -hmm. That's stored as carbon credits. Okay. We've been cutting about between 800 and 900,000 board feet per year. Okay. Um, um, let me just add one quick thing to that, which is. So the idea is, your plan may be today to cut 800,000, 2 million board feet. But when we did the original carbon project, and I don't recognize too many faces at the table other than Brett. Um, uh, and, and so there's, what the carbon project does is it locks in into the future how much you can harvest off there. So you're literally protecting the watershed from uh, a heavily increased harvest over time. Without the carbon project, a new city council could come in and say, you know what, we have 120 million board feet up there, and we should go out and cut half of it. Um, and, and you could do that legally under the forest practices rules of the state. And even though you're a domestic watershed, there are certain rules around a domestic watershed that you have to follow, but still you could heavily harvest that watershed and still be in compliance legally. Uh, and what this carbon project does is really, frankly, prevents you from doing it. So you're getting paid uh, in lieu of harvesting timber at, at an increased rate. You're getting paid to maintain the stock on the ground uh, or on the, on the stump, if you will, over time. So it's, it's uh, actually, it's, it, it kind of binds the, the future of what can be done at least over the 40 years of the project. But in that sense, it protects the watershed. It absolutely protects it from overharvesting. Right. It's, it is, it's consistent with our practices to protect the drinking water supply. That's the most important thing. Would we be able, beyond 2020 and this proposed project, uh, do you foresee other big revenues possibly through the sale of carbon credits? Or are we getting tapped out? So, so the, 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 the simple answer is, there was an initial flush of credit at the beginning, and as Ben just described, we were predicting another flush of credit um, because of the way the baseline was, was developed to meet law versus what your project activity is doing. From this point forward, there aren't going to be any, any really large flushes, but what you will be able to monetize in the future between now and the rest of the project period is growth minus harvest. 
So you can you can monetize if you're growing four million feet and you're only harvesting a million feet, that three million feet of volume can be converted to carbon and you can sell that uh, every year into the future. And, and uh, because transaction cost is fairly high to transact these, these uh, the, the best approach for carbon projects like yours is every five years or whatever, wherever the market looks good and you've accumulated enough credits, then you can justify the cost to go through and do another third party verification and all the costs associated with that uh, because then you will be making a net profit off that transaction, if that makes sense. Yeah, thank you. I would have to say if some future council decided uh, that they wanted to cut 50% 50, 50 of our watershed, I'd be down here with my pitchfork and my torch. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I also would point out that taking a tour of the watershed was great because we, we viewed some of the areas that had been fed, that had been harvested. And what you look at when you view those areas is healthy forest. It's not like what you see by the side of the road in any way. I'd like to just add too that with, with this being the last flush of, of, of solid revenue besides the annual timber harvest, um, having having some of this money set aside for the obligations of this 40-year term, in addition to some stewardship projects within the um, watershed, that there are there are some thinning projects that we need to do that aren't as profitable. Um, that's the kind of uh, thinning where the trees are not worth harvesting and leaving behind. You're actually I think I saw a hand, please come up. I'm Chris Ferrar, live uh, here in Astoria, I've been 30, 23 years in energy. I have uh, one kind of uh, detailed point about one of the slides that you showed, Ben about the additionality and it kind of showed a base level and it showed where our stocks are and there was a steep step in it. I was curious to know about that, but a broader question is I'm wondering if there's anything being done to determine whether this plant that sequesters carbon up there and keeps our cutting to a minimum uh, is in any way enhancing the water supply. Shouldn't there, if there isn't, shouldn't we be doing monitoring to see and understand the hydrologic implications long-term for this project, which I think will be beneficial, but I'm just curious about that. Thanks. Great, thank you, Chris. Um, so that slide where it does go up and then is the dip, that's for a single stand. So actually the way I modeled that is what happens when you thin. If you combine all of the stands, and a stand is kind of like your logical management unit, that line would, you're right, just be a steady increase. You would not see a dip like that. So if you model it at a stand level, it's a little different than if you model it at a full property but, level. But that was on a timeline, right? Yeah, so that's if you took one stand and grew it 20 years into the future, thinned it, and then it kept growing. Uh, but in most of our cases, it would just be But doesn't that indicate a huge thin at that point in time? That would in that case, yeah. 
When was it and why? That's just one that I modeled. It was just a pretend stand that oh, I had. Oh, a pretend, okay. It was a completely pretend stand that I put into a computer model oh. and generated a graph from. So it was just like I made up to try That's to visualize additionality over time. It's nice to have that dip because then you can explain why you might lose additionality in the future. Okay. Um, the second piece, I completely agree we should be doing more around water modeling and understanding the hydrologic implications of this. What we are doing currently is working with Sustainable Northwest and a group of other watersheds around the coast to adopt an EPA model that is actually the one that's been used in the Nisqually Basin recently to model kind of forest complexity and diversity over time. Uh, I think we've discussed this before. The issue we currently have is we don't have a great history in the back, like preceding phase date of actual uh, runoff data. And so actually a set of valves that the city's recently installed allows to get a much more accurate idea of how much water is being generated up there. And that's something that we just recently figured out will help us to uh, calibrate that EPA model and be able to understand the implications of our forest management decisions and the actual outcomes in the future of forest management decisions. So we're working on it. Um, but it is something that's a slow, slow thing to move forward. Thank you. Now, and I'll just add to that too. If, if you know, in the engineering world, if you're doing something that adversely impacts a resource, it's really important to be modeling it to make sure that you're not having negative impacts or to measure the degree of those negative impacts. In our case, we're pretty confident that these practices are making things better. We're, we're seeing, like, like an example I gave in a previous meeting about the end of the 2015 um, drought on the West Coast, how, how well we held up in that, maintaining 74% of our storage at the driest time of the year, and then going back to 100% full storage in, in a very short time frame of less than a week and a half to two weeks, shows that resiliency that we have. So if we are having problems and, and things poking at us, it's really important to be super on top of, of what, what Chris was, uh, was referring to. But knowing that we're doing our practices or making things better, in my mind at least, is, is less important, but it's something we definitely want to do. It's a great idea. And, and we wish the USGS monitoring data that was in there before would have kept on going. That program would have been great for us because then we can plug that into a model and, and see exactly what's happening. But unfortunately, that was a 10-year period, I believe. And then they stopped monitoring it. And so we don't have any data since the 70s, I believe. This is unfortunate. Yeah, I, I'd like to thank you, Chris. You, you bring this up periodically, and, and and you keep bringing it up. And this is really the most thorough answer kind of I've heard uh, here publicly. So I, I appreciate all that information going forward. But I tend to agree with Chris that that's a good idea. And, and the question is, how do we do that? And how do we get there for not doing it? And it sounds like we've got a process going forward, so I appreciate you that a lot. Great, thank you, gentlemen. We have a motion. If I may, I'd like to move that we approve the 2020 carbon credit purchase. I will second that. All in favor? This will be authorized, just to clarify, we get a little yeah. language correct, and it's authorizing the agreement with the finance rights. Yes, it is. Okay. <laughs> Great, all in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? Okay, with impeccable time, timing, I see uh, Chief Crutchfield and uh, his deputy chief have returned. And we'll continue with, as our final presentation, what was going to be our earlier presentations. Come on up, gentlemen.
Good evening, Mayor and City Councilors. Um, since arriving at the Fire Department in March, one of my top priorities has been to fill our open deputy chief position. I took quite a bit of time to get to know our staff, and I was pleased that we had some good qualified internal candidates for the position. And after uh, an internal process, I've selected Terry Corbett to fill that position. So on June 1st, he begins our deputy chief, although today was his first day in the office. And uh, I look forward to his leadership and his partnership and uh, helping me lead and manage our fire department. So, uh, Deputy Chief Terry Corbett. Deputy Chief, 29 years with the Astro Fire Department, right? Yes, sir. 29 years. I think 29 years, at least 29 words. Cure <laughs> <laughs> 11 still stands? Yes. There you go. How's that? Is, is a man of few words, but great accomplishment. We're very happy to have uh, Deputy Chief Corbett agree to accept the leadership position. And I thank you. Thanks, Chief Crutcher. Okay, so before we go into executive session, um, we're going to take a recess from City Council and reconvene as the Asteroid Development Commission. Mayor, do you want to check and see if there's anybody who has any oh, items? So we'll open the City Council meeting now to public comment on any other topics. Okay, hearing none, we will uh, recess the City Council and we will now convene the uh, 3 June 2019 meeting of the Astoria Development Commission. Uh, roll call, Mr. Pearson. Councilor Herman? Here. Councilor Brownson? Here. Councilor West? Here. Councilor Rocco? Here. Mayor Lemire? Or Mayor Jones? <laughs> Here. And uh, uh, Mr. Estes, are there any changes to the agenda? No changes. Uh, consent calendar. Uh, items on the consent calendar are routine, will be adopted by one motion. Unless uh, any items have been requested to be removed. Have any members of the public asked to have an item removed from the consent calendar? No request. Any uh, from the council? Council? Okay, so uh, item 4A is Asteroid Development Commission meeting minutes of May 4, 2019. And could we have a motion to approve the consent calendar? I move we approve the consent calendar. I will second that. Okay, and a uh, roll call, Mr. Uh, Williams. Raise your hand after we introduce it. Um, item 4G is fiscal year 2019-2020 Asteroid Development Commission budget public hearing and resolution. So Ward and budget law requires that the Development Commission hold a public hearing on the budget as recommended for approval by the Budget Committee. And the resolution included the packet would adopt resources and appropriations to authorize the collection of tax increment funding available to the Astor East and Astor West Urban Renewal Districts for fiscal year ending June 30, 2020, it's recommended that the Development Commission hold a public hearing. And after the hearing, it's recommended the Commission consider the resolution to adopt the budget. Okay. 
public hearing is now open. Would any, anyone like to make a comment about the uh, ADC budget? Hearing none, the public hearing is closed. Council comment. Or motion. Is this a motion for both uh, east and west? Yes, it combined? is. Yes. Okay. Well, I, uh, I move that we accept the budget for the Astoria Development Commission. Second. Your roll call, Mr. Harrington. Commissioner Hernick? Aye. Commissioner Brownson? Aye. Commissioner West? Aye. Commissioner Rocca? Aye. Chair? Aye. Uh, any new business? Any public comment about the ADC? The ADC meeting is adjourned, and we will reconvene as Astoria City Council during executive session. Yes, brief.